Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for downloading episode five of the B2B social media podcast. This is Eric Schwartzman in Los Angeles. And Paul Gillen in Framingham, Massachusetts. And uh, we have a lot to talk to you about uh, on this episode, starting with a recap of South by Southwest. I just got back last night. And, um, you know, heading out to the conference, uh, there's an overwhelming amount of content there. I mean, just getting through uh, the um the uh, agenda to try to figure out which sessions to go to is a huge amount of work. Um, but, you know, I was surprised that, you know, regardless of the fact that there is so much covered there, there was not a single B2B focused session on the agenda. I posted a um, note to the B2B uh, online marketing group on LinkedIn that I'm a member of asking other B2Bs uh, what sessions they were going to. And the only response I got was, well, maybe you should pitch a B2B session next year. And it seems like uh, that's really not the point. I mean, the point is that South by Southwest is one of the top social media events of the year and certainly something that people look to as a as kind of a beacon of well, what's going on in this industry. And I, I agree with you, Eric. I think it's stunning. It's that there are, uh, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of sessions in South by Southwest that not a single one would be devoted to this topic. It just seems like uh, uh, this is maybe the, the show considered itself to be a consumer event, uh, and certainly that's been its historic focus. But, uh, you know, it's time to wake up and, and realize what's going on. Uh, out there in the market well it's it's not true that it yeah you know, i mean a lot of the products that um you know are being marketed there really what they're doing is marketing their products to developers right i mean so foursquare is there trying to get people to develop apps for their uh platform twitter's there trying to get people to develop apps for their platform i mean that's what's going on there right uh android's there trying to get people to make android apps so it is totally b2b in terms of you know what's going on at the show so even if it wasn't um about you know b2b vendors of b2b products and services it could just be valuable to the marketers that are there at the show yeah, I, I mean, you make a good point that it basically is a B2B conference because uh, those are the people that, uh, that the vendors are trying to reach. But uh, I've been surprised, honestly. I am uh, currently writing the, the interactive marketing guide for B2B magazine, and I put out now three appeals on uh, LinkedIn, including to the B2B social media group there, which is quite an active group. I put out several appeals on Twitter just asking people, do you have a good case study? That you would want to share for uh, for coverage in B2B magazine, I haven't had a single response. J- uh, amazing, two weeks of of asking for case studies, I haven't had a single person come back and say, uh, "Yeah, we'd like to be part of that." And, and I don't know what that is because I know that there are some great uh, stories out there, but uh, our B2B marketers just uh, are they reticent or are they afraid of of tipping their competitive hand? It's just uh, it, uh, it, it amazes me that. Uh, I didn't hear more feedback on that question. Well, what do you think? I mean, why do you? Th- what's your? Uh, what do you speculate? Why aren't? Why are they holding out? They don't have well, them, I'm, or? 
No, my my thinking is, I mean, there's tons of B2B blogs out there, and, and I'm actually judging the B2B Magazine Social Media Awards right now, and there's lots of good examples that I found in there. I think that there is a tendency for B2B marketers to think that because they're not the old Spice Man, you know, and because they're not Coca-Cola, and they're not doing uh, all this glitzy uh, YouTube stuff, that they're, that they're not interesting. And uh, the fact is, what makes a B2B uh, story interesting is really much more about the bottom line business results rather than the flashiness of the apps that they're using. That's my theory. Out of respect for uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who uh, gave one of the keynotes at South by Southwest, he said, if ever anybody brings up the old Spice guy as an example of social media, he said, take off your shoe and smack him in the face with it. Because he said, that was a talking campaign. Old Spice didn't answer a single frickin' question that was sent their way from Twitter. They got no discussion going. They basically bought the conversation with a campaign, and guess what? It's over now, right? But, uh, but they, they posted 108 videos on YouTube, all of which were responses to questions asked by people on Facebook and Twitter. I, I don't see where he gets away saying that. Well, that's a good point. But, I mean, um, in terms of you know, getting involved in a conversation – and actually like out caring, like actually caring enough about what people are saying to respond, that didn't happen. Well, as you look at their Facebook page, last time I checked, there was tons of conversation going on on their Facebook page. I just think, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk is, is a bit of a loose cannon. He's made his, his, uh, uh, his uh, persona, you know, based on saying outrageous things like that. But I happen to, to know and have spent some time with the a PNG product manager who was in charge of that campaign, and there were lots of efforts to engage uh, on that campaign. And, and the Facebook page, I think, is a is a great example of that. I, re- I honestly don't believe Gary knows what he's talking about. Fair enough. Now, um, you, you found an interesting item here about uh, Twitter cracking down on uh, third party applications, and uh, you know some speculation on whether or not this is the end of the alternative client community. Um, you want to you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this is uh, referencing a uh, an article. A couple of articles were posted in the uh, in the show notes, but uh, it showed up on uh, the Twitter blog last week, and then uh, was picked up by TechCrunch uh, in a story about uh, Twitter dropping the ecosystem hammer, as TechCrunch characterized it. And that is, that they have cut, they've uh, cracked down on third-party apps that use the Twitter API, which has been very widely shared. I mean, closest thing to an open API, really, that I I know of. Uh, and saying that apps that attempt to recreate the Twitter experience will not be tolerated anymore, that they want apps that, that expand upon and build on the Twitter experience, and simply duplicating what Twitter does is not, uh, not going to be tolerated anymore. And I actually, my first indication of this was about two weeks ago when I uh, turned on my, uh, my uh, Android app that I was using for Twitter, which is called Twidroid, and found out that it had been suspended. It wasn't working anymore because of violation of Twitter's terms of service. And uh, I was directed to use the Twitter app instead for Android, which is terrible, just terrible. Uh, was able to find eventually that TweetDeck does have an Android app that is uh, approaches the, the quality of its desktop app. But it seems to me that Twitter, now that it has reached critical mass, is trying to really turn the screws and get some... Uh, and take advantage of its size and begin to uh, uh, reap the spoils 
of the the size of the audience that it's created and the third-party developers are suffering in the process i'm sure that there are very legitimate reasons that twitter is doing this and that there are lots of apps that really aren't enhancing the twitter experience but are simply duplicating it but i certainly hope they are not arbitrary in the way they enforce these new uh, regulations well, I mean, I read the um, uh, TechCrunch story as well, and I actually thought it was kind of a smart move on their on their part because what they what it looks like, at least from you know this reporter's coverage, and let's just get his name so that we know who uh, wrote the story. M- MG, MG right, Sigler. right, right, right. Um, from 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 his story, I mean, it seems to me like what they're saying is, look, if you're just going to you know do what our website does, we don't need you. We need people to iterate on top of our platform and add sustenance, add uh, useful experience. And they call out a few examples like, you know, Foursquare and Instagram and Quora, you know, which have integrated Twitter but aren't a Twitter experience. They do something else and uh, integrate Twitter for the sharing component of it. Then in the social CRM space, he mentions Hootsuite, which, by the way, I really like their Android app. You might check it out. Uh, Co-Tweet, Radium 6, Seismic, Crimson Hexagon, you know, all these brands that are sort of adding a social CRM component to it. Um, And then he uses as an example, Clout, you know, a company which isn't just doing Twitter, but they have a service which allows you to measure uh, the influence of a Twitter user. And I know it's a controversial service. Some people think it's good. Some people think it's, it's not. I'm not arguing either way i'm just saying it does something other than just allow you to tweet so i think it's actually smart of them to say look if all you're going to do is add no value but just try to move tweets why should we let you participate in our ecosystem you have to do something useful well i think doing something useful improving upon the twitter experience uh, it can be useful and again i would point to uh, you know take tweet deck which uh, i i Trust will not be affected by these rules because of the, the volume of users that they have. Uh, you know, I would hate to see an application like that, which is basically using the Twitter stream uh, to and filtering it and uh, presenting it through a different user interface, could arguably be said to not be enhancing uh, the Twitter, uh, the, the content of Twitter. Yet it's a way better way to uh, to uh, use Twitter than anything that Twitter has. And again, in the case of the Android app that I was using, and, and there were others, I was also used uh, uh, Seismic on the Android, uh, both of them were leagues ahead of what Twitter itself was doing with its own app. And so I think that that is a, it certainly is Twitter's right to exercise uh, a control and, and to decide who can uh, take advantage of the infrastructure it's built, but I hope that they are also uh, uh, iterating and improving the quality of what they're doing. I, I mean, I hate to see this become you know, an, an Internet Explorer type of scenario where Microsoft just suddenly stopped innovating. Once it had won the browser war, it stopped innovating and, uh, and let uh, others pass it by. Interestingly enough, the representative from uh, Twitter, a guy named uh, Evan Sarver, who uh, was the one that came out with this announcement at a, 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 a roundtable with uh, some press. He said that according to Twitter's own data, some 90% of active Twitter users now use official Twitter apps on a monthly basis to access the service. So basically what he said was 90% of active Twitter users now use official Twitter apps, not the apps, not the other apps. But um, uh, Sysmos... Well, now, now, what did he say? Now, did... 
Now, precisely what, what was his wording? Because I use Twitter, I use the Twitter web interface occasionally because it's convenient for that particular topic. Well, here's the but, quote. Uh, Let me give you the quote. We need to move to a less fragmented world where every user can experience Twitter in a consistent way. That is already happening organically. The number and market share of consumer client apps that are not owned and operated by Twitter has been shrinking. Unquote. And then the editorial by uh, Mig Sickler in the TechCrunch article is Sarver notes that according to Twitter's own data, some 90% of active Twitter users... Sorry about that. Some 90% of active Twitter users now use official Twitter apps on a monthly basis to access the service. So that right. was apparently what surprising. came out of the briefing. 90%. Not surprising. Right. But, but you know, the other, but the other article, but the other article, which you bookmarked, uh, the Sysmos article, um, in their data, they said, uh, on June 09, their study showed 55% of tweets were made from non-official Twitter apps, and the number now stands at 42%. So they did show a decline, but what they speculated uh, was that um, basically uh, what they did was they analyzed 25 million tweets in one day on March 11th, and they said of those 25 million tweets on March 11th, 42% of them came from non-official apps. 58% came from official apps. And so what they said was when, when Twitter came out with a 90% number, they're probably talking about all users, not all active users. Right. And the wording, again, is important here. What Twitter said was, quote, 90% of active Twitters use official Twitter apps on a monthly basis. That means at least once a month you go to Twitter.com and you use it, which I'm sure most people do. What Sysmos said is that looking at 25 million tweets, 42% of those tweets were made by non-official apps. So what they're saying is that, yes, people may visit Twitter, but that's not uh, the, the uh, uh, nearly half of the tweets that they send out are not sent using Twitter. They're using something else. We're going to so take talking a, two different things. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Spiceworks launching Facebook-like pages and Groupon getting into B2B. Stay with us. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business -business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step -step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. So I saw an interesting story. Um, it's actually uh, came out on a site called Adatos. And this, the headline was Spiceworks makes space for vendors on IT social network. 
And I actually went into Spiceworks and checked it out. What they've done is they've got a place now for vendors to set up pages. And, um, you know, there's a, you, there's a bunch of different tabs on vendor pages, but one of the tabs is a discussion tab. And on the discussion tab, there's essentially an activity stream. And you can post to the activity stream. You can extend those posts to Twitter or show them on Facebook as well if you choose. Um, and then there's other uh, tabs where vendors can basically get conversations going. Um, and I actually uh, got into a conversation with uh, Kaylin King, who posted an item today. She's with uh, Microsoft, and her item is EI9 launched initial thoughts, question mark. And then she has a link to the PC World uh, uh, review. And my, my, I basically posted saying, look, you know, we've all been using IE9 for a while now, so it didn't really seem like much of an official launch. And she says, yeah, I suppose it was for me too, although I'm excited it's finally out of beta, which I think is nice. She responded quickly. So it seems like um, there's some... I don't know, at least this looks like the only actual discussion that's picked up. Everything subsequently is just her talking. And then if you go to a lot of the other vendor pages, you know, it's so new that there's really not much discussion picking up yet. Um, but I don't know, Paul, what do you think? I mean, you think this will catch on? I think it will because Spiceworks is just doing so many things right. I mean, they, they recently passed 1.3 million members. And uh, it is a company with a very interesting business model where they give away software for free and then they monetize the community through advertising and other services. And what they've done is uh, built a, uh, a base of enthusiasts by giving away a very good product, delivering great value, and then monetizing this in other ways. And I think that their community is happy to participate in this because they see so much value in what they're getting from the company. And I think the lesson for B2B marketers here is that you know, marketing to people is not evil. Uh, marketing to people without giving them any value is where you get into into trouble. And I think Spiceworks is being you know, very uh, transparent about the fact that it needs to make money through services such as these vendor pages. And uh, but it's delivering such terrific value to its audience that they're uh, they're happy to participate. I wonder, you know, I wonder if um, if the vendor pages take off or not. I mean, obviously, you know, these guys have really perfected, uh, you know, the craft of selling software as media. Right. I mean, let's face it. Software is intellectual property. It is a form of media. Why? Why couldn't it be ad supported? It makes perfect sense. We profile them in the book. Um, but I, I, I'm not 100 percent sold that, you know, these vendor pages particularly the activity streams are going to take off because my concern would be if I silo the conversation here in Spiceworks rather than, you know, on LinkedIn or on Facebook or on Twitter where there's a bigger community, I feel like it's less likely I'm going to get a lot of answers or really get much conversation going. I think the stakes for marketers are really being raised by uh, uh, choices like this where, you know, it used to be that the, the more money you spent, the bigger audience you got, the better the better results you got. But now we're seeing uh, sort of a new dynamic emerge where you, it's fairly cheap to get access to the audience, but you have to do something remarkable to get them to pay attention to you. And so that raises the stakes where, yeah, so they can get a channel on Spiceworks, big deal. What the, What's going to make a difference is what they do with it. And that's, uh, you know, that has really raised the stakes. 
So some of the featured pages so far, Rackspace is there in the featured section. Intel is there in the featured, featured, featured section. Nansuni is there in the featured section. Lifesize, CDW. And then in the newest, I see Managed Maintenance. I see Cloudberry Lab. I see... Gosh, I can't even pronounce some of these names. Popular is Microsoft and Unitrends. So, I mean, it definitely looks like, you know, people are trying it out. But I do see repetition, like in the different sections, like Intel's in the featured section and in the popular this week section. So, I wonder, I mean, I wonder how many pages they really do have. It looks like if you count it up, it looks like it's under 100 at this point. So, but that's a pretty good start, huh? But they're still still early on, and, and SpiceWorks client list is something that uh, that any B two B tech uh, publisher would be happy to have. Uh, they're working with uh, with everybody out there because they're delivering really a unique value proposition. Uh, and I, I think you know this is a, another net. This company has been very innovative in the ways it's figured out how to monetize its community. It's so interesting, you know, because on the one hand, you know, you go to South by Southwest, you know, there's not a single B two B session, and then you look at these, you know, bright shining stars like SpiceWorks. Man, they're just killing it, and they're like the only ones doing it. It's like it's so amazing, isn't it? The more people don't catch on. I, I don't know. You, I was listening to a podcast uh, of actually. Um, uh, the six degrees of the six pixels of separation podcast with with Seth Godin, and he was saying, you know, the cost of failure today is practically zero. So you don't have to take big financial risks in order to to try something. So, you know, why worry about about doing new things when it's not going to cost you all that much if you fail? But as you're right, as you point out, I mean, here's this company, SpiceWorks, that has really broken the mold, and I see the the traditional tech publishers, which is a world that I lived in for a long time, doing absolutely nothing to try to uh, uh, to innovate on their model. They're just letting SpiceWorks at this point walk away with that market. Well, I mean, to be fair, you know, um, SpiceWorks has a product that, uh, you know, delivers incremental value, whereas on the media side, it's one-to-one, man. You've got to keep generating new stories, and they, quite frankly, in the news business, don't have that extended of a shelf life. Yeah, but you can buy software. I mean, there's lots of, of companies that have good technology out there that they've been unable to, uh, to sell for one reason or another. You can buy the intellectual assets and then, and then experiment. How, how much does it cost you to, to buy a failed software company and, and give away their product and see if you can do something, uh, uh, you know, you can build something like this on a small scale? I just think that it's... But how would that work? Like, if, if I was a, a publisher... And I acquired uh, a failing software company. I have to keep that software current, and I really have to, you know, uh, reinvigorate my my human resource ranks so I can be able to support it. I have to reinvent myself as a software company. Well, you certainly, or or you have to uh, create a, a a wholly owned subsidiary that does that. Uh, there, there are any number of websites out there of, of publishers. Uh, I guess you call them publishers. They give away software and then uh, monetize that by charging the companies for distribution. I, there's one I subscribe to called Giveaway of the Day, that uh, every day uh, has a, you know another free product. They're usually products that you you would pay fifteen or twenty dollars for if you would pay at all. But some of them are quite good, and you know, I'd say maybe you know, fifteen or twenty times a year I'll actually download one of those products. Now they make their money off of various back-end uh, advertising and, and promotional deals. And I don't see why a publisher couldn't buy a company like that and, and try to bring some of their 
uh, list management and their promotional assets to making that a bigger business. Uh, fair enough. Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, give away a day. Um, and our last story that I want to talk about is Groupon, of all people, getting into B2B. It's a story here by Chris Ashton in the Daily Deal Media, um, rife with typos, I might add, about um, <laughs> the web. It's the web. Man. Yeah. About ag- agility, which is a business intelligence cloud service doing a coupon for a seat on their platform on Groupon. The, yeah, the platform's really 25 grand, and they're going to give you a seat for 12.5 if you are a medium to large business. And um, at the time the deal went up, uh, there were two days left and no takers. What do you think? You think uh, something like this can work for B2B? No. I mean, in a word, I think that, you know, one thing we make clear in our, in our book, Eric, is that B2B decisions are value-based. And so uh, discounts and giveaways, certainly they have their place. I mean, some services like you know, email marketing services or business cards or, or some very small dollar services can make money with giveaways. But if you're giving away, if you're selling a $25,000 product for half of that, a, uh, I think that it raises questions about the value of the product in the first place. And one dynamic in B2B markets that we always hear is you don't want to undercharge because you actually create questions about the quality of what you have to offer. And B, uh, when companies buy into something like that, they probably are looking to buy a long-term subscription basis. They want to build on the, uh, on the product rather than just you know, buying it one time because it's cheap. And so uh, that's why upfront discounts rarely work certainly in large B2B decisions. What do you take? I totally agree with you. And, you know, ever since Groupon has been news, I subscribe to Groupon just to see what's going on there. And I'll tell you, man, I don't get it because I haven't gotten a single coupon that has interested me. And today, when I was getting ready, you know, just sort of kicking through Groupon to see if there's any other B2B stuff besides this agility thing that was uh, blogged, I didn't see anything really that I wanted, let alone anything B2B. I mean, pretty much everything on there is like, you know, either a massage or a yoga class. I mean, there doesn't seem like there's anything other than, you know, local services that are quite frankly, are commodity services available there. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little puzzled on, you know, what all the fuss is about, what all the valuation is about. If any of our listeners are Groupon um, subscribers and you get value out of it, could you please enlighten me and tell yes. me what's so great about Groupon? I agree as well. I, I did some, I actually did subscribe to Groupon. I stopped after their Super Bowl ads because I had some I had some very uh, negative reactions to their Super Bowl campaign. But uh, but during the time I subscribed, I found that there was. I, there wasn't a single offer that interested me, and I, and I subscribe to a couple of local services like that, too, that offer deals right in my geographic area. I've never taken up on one of those either. Do you get why they're valued so high? I mean, what's the big I, deal? They must be getting results is all I can think. I, I don't see why, uh, uh, you know, why their, their market value would be so high unless they're releasing uh, data about the results that they're having. But I've also seen, uh, well, the company reportedly is profitable. That's what I've heard. Uh, but... I, I don't know if their dollar. I don't know what their dollar volume is, and certainly I've also seen reporting the effect of their the, what, exactly what you say. The companies that are offering deals through Groupon are not getting much value out of them. They're actually money losers for them, and and they're they're not seeing it made up on the on the other end. 
so it, it's mysterious. I think for, for B2B marketers, though, I, I think the message here is that uh, services like Groupon, I think, should be looked at as you know very hard as a way to get a B2B product out there, unless it is something that services a very price-sensitive market. So um, what's up for you? Well, what do you got going this week? Well, I'm finishing up the B2B Magazine uh, Interactive Marketing Guide and still looking for those good case studies, uh, but haven't had, uh, haven't had a whole lot of luck so far. Um, so that's an awesome tip for listeners. If you want to be featured, how can they contact you? Uh, it's, well, they can contact me um, on Twitter at P. Gillen. Uh, they can find our contact information on ontherecordpodcast.com. I'm also, uh, they can contact me through my website, gillen.com. But, you know, uh, just I uh, appreciate the plug, Eric. I write regularly for B2B Magazine. We're always looking for good case studies. So, boy, I mean, you want to get some, you want to get some press. Uh, it, it's, there's not a lot of competition right now for B2B uh, good stories in the B2B realm. And what's up with you, sir? Uh, well, I'm still kind of smarting from the beating I took on Twitter at my panel at South by Southwest. Oh, no. I, I took a beating, what? man. Well, there was this panel outsourcing your voice in social media without selling your soul. And I was the yeah. token guy on the panel who said, I don't believe and I don't that you can outsource social media without selling your soul, at least not the conversational side of it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had some people sort of, you know, cheer when I said that. Uh, but then all the agency people in the room that, you know, are obviously threatened by that position. I mean, they just went off on Twitter and they were flipping out, man. It was a very controversial panel, a lot of discussion. Um, I, I don't re I don't regret having shared my opinion. I, it's still my opinion. I actually writing a blog post about it right now. Uh, but I do believe that the action, uh, if you're on the agency side is, is not the conversational not, not handling the conversation for the client, but rather, um, helping the client um, develop more literacy with social media, enterprise-wide, helping the client with strategy, helping the client with listening, and helping the client with content creation, community management, but not accepting the voice of the client. And, you know, sort of the perfect example of this was around South by Southwest, uh, right all around the convention center are all these really, you know, attractive, hard-bodied uh Guys and girls, young guys and girls in tight clothing, uh, handing out coupons, you know, in branded clothing, promoting some sort of product that's being showcased at, at, at South by Southwest. And if you have any interest at all in any of the products and you ask any of these people even the most basic questions about the products, they can't answer them. Well, I mean, they're getting $15 an hour. Right. So how right, do so you possibly outsource your voice? How, how does that scale? How is it fiscally responsible? How could it ever work? Right? And, and I agree with you. I, I, I agree that it's a, it's a bad move. And I, I don't know if you caught this week an interesting development along those lines. Uh, Chrysler fired its social media marketing agency after uh, one, of, one of the members of that agency sent out a profane tweet criticizing Detroit drivers, uh, apparently by mistake, under an account that Chrysler was using for the purpose of promoting Detroit. Uh, and so I think your, your uh, uh, experience, I think your position is, is particularly relevant in light of, of those kinds of missteps. If we didn't have such profound social media illiteracy in the boardroom, 
these things would never happen in the first place. But what happens is, you know, they, they say, oh, well, let's get a Twitter page. Let's get a Facebook page. And they, they hire some agency or they hire some people. They don't have a policy. You know, at the top, they don't understand how these things work. And then they get in trouble. And just, uh, you know, closing on that, I, I saw a uh, uh, there was a piece in Bulldog Reporter that I actually tweeted uh, just uh, just yesterday about the um, a new study that shows that 96% of marketers' companies say they now use social media, but only 9% have social media staff training. So, I and, mean, what, what, a, what a great opportunity that is for folks on the agency side. It's not that there's no work to be done. First of all, it's not that clients can't responsibly outsource work, and it's not that agencies can't responsibly make a buck doing the work. But doing, handling the conversation and the voice is a gutless move. I completely agree. I think that the agency's role is is to help the uh, the client express their voice in the most effective manner. So if you want more on that, you can go to my blog at spinfluencer.com. I am headed off to Dusseldorf, Germany, to teach a social media boot camp. And then I may actually be speaking at a Dell event where, by the way, Paul, they're buying a copy of our book for everybody there. Yay! Well, considering that they're the lead anecdote in the first chapter, and and that their CMO wrote the uh, wrote the foreword, I I would hope so. Yeah, and she's speaking at the event. Um, also, we sold out our our books at the South by Bookstore, so that was awesome. I was like, I went down for the book scanning. I got to tell you, man, I felt like you know. I felt like a debutante at the ball or something. I'm like there. I'm like, oh, my God, what if none of these things sell? And Wiley, the publisher, is there. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're going to see that none of them sold. They're going to have to take them back, and I'm going to look stupid. And sure enough, we sold them all. And yet not a single B2B uh, pan, uh, B2B session on the entire agenda. I know. Like and that? I had people come by from Intel, people come by from Dell. I mean, major companies that are doing this stuff in the B2B sector like, oh my God, thank you for finally writing this book. Well, that's great. That's that's very gratifying. And, and we, uh, 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 well, we're just, we, we love the reviews and we love the, the feedback, good and bad. It's It's been great. Great. So uh, this is wrapping up the fifth episode of the B2B Social Media Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com on Twitter at OnTheRecord, or send email to OnTheRecordPodcast at gmail.com.